All right, we are back in uh, John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, when I started putting together my notes this morning, I thought that uh, we'd be able to go from verse 6 all the way to uh, verse 19. That was my plan. And by the time I finished, I decided that verses 6 through 10 would be a good span um, because I was running out of sheets on my document. Um, this prayer, just kind of a, a reminder of content and what's going on, um, this, is, this is Jesus talking to the Father in front of the disciples, in the upper room, after the Passover meal, after the washing of the feet, after the uh, departure of Judas. Uh, the, the, the next thing that's going to happen after this is Jesus departs the upper room and he goes to the garden he prays. And remember, he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he tells them to stand watch for a little while, and he goes and prays, and he comes back, and what are they doing? Snoozing. So he, he chastises them, and he goes again, and he comes back, and what are they doing? Snoozing. So he chastises them, and he goes again the third time, and he prays, and when he comes back this time, they're snoozing again, only he doesn't really take the time to chastise them because the crowd is there, the mob is there to arrest him. Um, so this, this right here is his next to last prayer that's recorded for us in Scripture. Of course, his final prayer being there in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as far as a formal prayer goes, um, what we would consider to be a prayer. Uh, this is a chapter that really warrants a lot of study. There's a lot of deep theological implication to this prayer. In the, the first five verses last week, we were talking about the implication of Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father. Um, how he showed God's glory by his obedience. Um, and, and Jesus said he showed that glory to the world. He, he showed that to all who have been given to him. And that theme of those who've been given to him is throughout the rest of the chapter. Um, it will be our obedience to what Jesus has to tell us that show his glory and the glory of the Father to the world. There's, there's a reason we are called to live lives of obedience. There's... there's there is this, this issue in the church, especially in the United States, where we have taken the idea of obedience to Scripture to mean that we have to come to church. That's not the point of the Christian life. <laughs> our, our call is not to come and to lend body heat a bunch of chairs once a week. That is not what we are directed to do. In fact, Jesus doesn't command the church to gather for worship. He, he says that we're supposed to be worshipers in spirit and in truth, but he never commands us to come together to worship with one another. He doesn't command us to come together to pray with one another, though there are plenty of times throughout the rest of the New Testament where we are admonished to pray for one another, and we are encouraged to gather together. The book of Hebrews says you don't uh, forsake the gathering, as some are uh, in the habit of doing. 
But what Jesus does clearly call us to do is be obedient to what he's commanded us to do. Which is things like loving our neighbors, loving our enemies, loving our friends, loving our families, um, giving of ourselves to those who don't have. These are all things that Jesus commands for us to do. They're not things that save us, but they're things that show Jesus' presence in our life. So now we're going to get ready for the the next section here. I'm going to have you all stand with me, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 this morning. I tested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let's pray. Father, in this short passage today, I pray that you would help us to see the importance of your will in Jesus' life and your will in our life. Father, again, I ask that we would be changed by hearing your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, if you're paying close attention, when I closed that prayer, how did I close it? In Jesus' name. And I've told you that when Jesus says that we ask things in his name, he's not talking about tagging that little phrase on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name. Why do we do it? Habit. We do it because that's how we've been taught. Uh, Just like um, that, there are folks, and and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but I absolutely love people. I love hearing people pray who were taught to pray in a form of 17th century English, okay? None of us use thee and thou and thy in our normal conversational English. And yet the most casual country bumpkin who was taught to pray in a church that uses the King James or even the Geneva Bible probably taught them to pray with the these and the thous and the thys. It is completely unnatural for us, but it's how we're taught. And what we're taught, we stick with. Right? I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's one of those things that we often miss because we were taught incorrectly. So Jesus here, in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He manifested... The Father's name. Now, think about that word manifested for just a second. In English, what does it mean to manifest something? As a verb, it could either mean to put it on a manifest, like a shipping document, right? Or a crew manifest, or or a passenger manifest on an aircraft, or something like that. But most often it means to make something apparent, to show something. The patient manifested symptoms of Parkinson's disease, okay, to show something. So I thought that was pretty interesting, that the the English word 
means to, to make something apparent. So then I went and I looked up the Greek word. The Greek word that is translated as manifest means to make something apparent. <laughs> we got one right. How about that? <laughs> the idea here is to, Jesus is saying that he has made the Father's name apparent. Now just a quick cursory reading of that means that he showed God's name Two people, okay? But if all we're talking about when we say God's name is Yahweh or Jehovah or Adonai or Elohim or any of those names that we find in the Old Testament for God, if that's what we're looking for, we're going to be very, 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 very surprised because Jesus doesn't use any of those names in the Gospels. When he refers to God, he refers to him either as father or as the generic Greek word theos, which just means God. That's it. That's all. Um, So he's not talking about he has made God's proper name known to the people. It's not like when Moses went before Pharaoh, right? Remember when Moses is talking to God in the burning bush? And he says, who I say has sent me? God says, I am. Right? That's what, in case you didn't realize, Yahweh translates as I am that I am. That's God's proper name. That's his covenant name with his people. When Moses went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, who says let my people go? Moses' answer is, God does, Yahweh. I am that I am, the Almighty. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not making God's proper name known to the people. So there's got to be a further dimension of that word name than just the word that we assign to something as an identity. In the Greek and culturally in most of the ancient world, that word that is translated as name, and it, it really is the word name, carries more than just identification. It designates everything associated with the person who was named. It carries along with it feelings. It carries along with it the authority. It carries along with it the position of the individual. So here, here is an example. When you read at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul, minding his own business, he finally makes his way back to Jerusalem, and he goes to the church, he talks to the church, and then he has a group of guys who have made a vow, a group of Gentiles who have made a vow, and he's made a vow, so he agrees to escort them to the temple, right? They're Gentiles. They cannot go beyond the court of the Gentiles. Even the Jewish women could go further than the Gentiles could. Paul is seen entering the temple with these Gentiles and the crowd throws a riot because they think that he is taking Gentiles into a they are forbidden. And so this riot starts and the Roman soldiers show up and the Roman soldiers take him into custody. Of course, they misunderstand the entire thing. They think that he's one of these uh, revolutionaries who's trying to get Roman authority out of Jerusalem 
So they arrest him, they take him off, and they beat him. And he, he, he drops that bomb in the, you know, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? At which point the centurion gets a little bit scared. And take him before the Sanhedrin, they take him before the governor. And eventually, Paul gives the demand that his case be heard in front of Caesar. When we think of Caesar, okay, who's the, who's the first Caesar that you think of? Caesar Augustus? Okay, there's a kid who grew up reading the Bible. <laughs> Julius Caesar, right? The, the first of the Roman emperors, Julius Caesar. Um, Julius Caesar is actually only two-thirds of his name. His name is Gaius Julius Caesar. And it's not like in our society where you have a given name and then you have a middle name, maybe, and then you have a family name. In Latin, the, the first part of the name, Gaius, is his prenoma, which is his given name. Um, Julius is actually his family name. And then Caesar is his cognomen, which is known as a nickname. Now, it, it really was a nickname, you know, like uh, 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 I'm trying to think uh, that, 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 that uh, Ivan the Terrible, okay? Caesar would have been along the lines of the Terrible. It is believed there are three different indications of why the, the nickname, the, the cognomen may have been Caesar, one being that one of his ancestors was born by Caesarean section. Um, another one is because the color of his eyes or the color of his hair, uh, the ancestor, because the, the Latin word for the gray or the gray-blue of the eyes uh, or the silver of the hair was the word very similar to Caesar. And then the third has to do with elephant. Because uh, the Latin word for elephant has the word Caesar in it. Uh, and, and that's the one that people think that Julius Caesar favored the most because when he issued currency, there was a picture of an elephant on it. Okay? But that was a nickname. Julius was his family name. So if he was an American, if he, if he used our naming convention, then his name would have been Gaius Julius. And Caesar would have been his family nickname. Uh, became something that was given hereditarily uh, to uh, the particular branch of a family that a person belonged to, kind of a, uh, a further differentiation between the parts of the family. The only people who ever would have called him by his first name, Gaius, would have been very, very, very intimate friends and family members. Only those in his very closest circle would have called him Gaius. When Paul said, I want my case to be heard before Caesar, he wasn't talking about any member of the Caesar family. He wasn't talking about uh, the Roman emperor particularly. He was talking about the 
rank, the authority, the individual, whoever happened to be in that imperial seat, he was the one that Paul, Paul was appealing to the highest of authorities. And when he, he made that request, you can see it in the response that everybody gave. Because as soon as Paul said, I, as a Roman citizen, I have the right to have my case heard before Caesar, everybody kind of went, we're good. Not going to touch it. Right? And even when he was meeting with uh, uh, Agrippa, I believe it was, it was said if he hadn't demanded for his case to go before Caesar, he'd be a free man. But Paul is talking about that authority, that positional, almost title associated with the name. Now, if we go back to Jesus says, I have manifested your name, God's name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world, he is talking about that sense of authority, that sense of power, that sense of everything that is God. Back in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, Jesus says that the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. Everything he does, he does in the authority of the Father. Jesus doesn't do things on his own. He doesn't go off on a tangent and do things that he thinks are the right thing. He does what God has called him to do. Even when he was 12 years old and, and they left Jerusalem, and I mentioned this last week, they left back and they, they, they questioned him, where were you? And he says, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Even at 12 years old, he's doing what the Father has commanded him to do. And we still aren't out of verse 6. I've manifested your name to who? Yeah. To the people whom you have given me out of the world. He doesn't say all mankind. He doesn't say all of Israel. He doesn't say to the Roman Empire. He says to those whom you have given me. He's manifested God's authority and power to the people of the church. To those who are called out from the world. He's talking about his disciples. Not just the twelve, but everyone who follows him. If you think about when, when he fed the 5,000 on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and then later when he fed the 4,000, right? There were people there who were genuine followers of Christ. They were not in the majority. They were, they were a minority, but there were genuine followers who hung around to hear his explanations afterwards like the, like the twelve did. The twelve just happened to be his closest disciples. These people belong to the Father. Uh, and if you want a clear picture of this, take a quick look at Romans ver, uh, chapter 8, verse 30. I've mentioned this many times before. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We may not like the idea that God has predestined who will and who will not be saved. We may not like or be comfortable with the idea that God has chosen some for salvation and the rest not. It might not sit well with our human sense of fairness. But let's be honest, fairness equals justice. And if it was fair 
who would he select for salvation? Nobody. Um, even though there were people who heard Jesus' message there on the shore of the, the Sea of Galilee when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, when he gave the, the feeding of the 5,000, when these things happened, there were people who were not part of those whom God had predestined and called and, and so on and so forth. There were those who had not been born of the Spirit because they weren't part of that group. They missed the manifestation of God's power and glory. They may have seen it, okay? Now think of Judas, prime example. And, and Jesus is going to talk about him a little bit later on. Very, very important stuff about Judas later on. But Judas was there. When Jesus walked down off the mountain after, after the, the Sermon on the Mount, he walks down off the mountain, he sees the leper coming to him. Judas is probably one of these guys who's like... And he sees Jesus walk up to this man and touch him. And Jesus isn't made dirty, the man is made clean. Judas is there when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Judas is there when Jesus greets the demoniac, or demoniacs, depending on whether it's in Matthew or Luke or John, in the, the uh, across the sea in the, 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 the village of, I can't remember the name of it now, um, the Gadarenes. There we go. That's it. Or the Gerasenes, again, depending on the gospel. Judas was... When Jesus spoke to the man and cast the demons out into the herd of pigs. He saw all this stuff. But he didn't believe. He didn't get it. And, and like I said last week, this wasn't because of some cognitive problem in Judas's mind. It wasn't because he didn't have the sense. In fact, I would wager a guess that probably of all of them, Judas may have been the best educated of the twelve disciples. Every evidence points to the fact that he was an accountant before he followed Jesus. He was a bookkeeper. He was skilled in math. He was literate. Where you've got Peter and James and John and Andrew, what did they do? They were fishermen. They may have been able to read and write, but even when Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, on the Sanhedrin realizes Peter and John are standing there and the Sanhedrin says, these are not learned men. These are country bumpkins. And if you look at the difference between Peter's writing and Paul's writing, there's a huge disparity between the two. Judas was a very intelligent man. It wasn't because he was too dumb to understand who Jesus was. It's because he was not one of that number. The people who saw what Jesus did but weren't part of that group that God has given him out of the world failed to glorify God for what they saw. They may have glorified Jesus, but Jesus said everything that I do points to the Father. They may have said, wow, that's, that's really something. This guy's got some power. Wonder where it came from. Remember how the Pharisees reacted when he cast out the demon? He does it by the power of Satan. They saw the miracle, but they didn't glorify God for it. 
those who were given, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified, the born from above, Jesus says they have been gods from the foundation of the world. When did God make His choice? Scripture is very clear that it was before He ever created anything. He had already chosen. That's what predestined means. Before you did anything. When, when Paul writes in Romans and he's, he's talking about God's sovereign election of people, he says, Scripture tells us, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And what had they done? Nothing. God made that statement before they were born. And the ones who are gods, Jesus says in uh, the, the, the end of verse 6, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. That word kept does not necessarily mean obeyed. But it's the word guarded. It's the word preserved, held it close, internalized it. Not the empty keeping of the letter of the law, like the scribes and the Pharisees did, and not the the vain reciting of the law, like the priests and the Sadducees did, but guarding the law, holding it close, internalizing the meaning of it, the The people who, when when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, I tell you, if you hate your brother without cause, you've committed murder. The people who heard that and went, oh, God, forgive me. That's their first reaction. When Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. The people who hear that and go, oh, God, please, Please forgive me for what I've done. Not the people who think, (laughs) not the people who think, man, I really wish Jimmy was here. He could have used to hear that. Like we get in the church a lot, right? Well, he's not talking about me. I never had that problem except last Tuesday, but it wasn't that big a deal, right? And those people, Jesus says, Now we're in verse 7. They know, they understand, they have have not just cognitively grabbed a hold of this, but they, they have internalized this idea that everything that Jesus has, His authority, His power, His wisdom, everything that He has is from the Father. They, we, understand, at least in small part, that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. And I say in the most part because there, I still have problems with this. I will admit I am a human being and there, there, it is hard for me to understand how Jesus could be fully man and fully God. Because if I have something that is fully something, then it's fully that only. Especially when I'm talking about two natures. Right? I am fully human. I have a fully human nature. I do not understand how I could have a fully human nature and a fully divine nature at the same time. That doesn't make sense to me. Because a divine nature is perfect and sinless, and a human nature is corrupted. A divine nature is infinite. A human nature is finite. 
I don't understand how Jesus can have both natures at the same time and they don't mix up together. Because his human nature could not pollute divine nature and his divine nature could not purify his human nature. Because if his divine nature changed his human nature, then his sinlessness was false. Because his divinity would have made it impossible for him to sin. And he would not have been an acceptable sacrifice because he wouldn't have been tempted like we were. So there's a part of me that doesn't understand this. There's a part of us that doesn't understand this. But Jesus says that we know that everything that Jesus has comes from the Father. That he is the Son of God. We believe that he is the Christ, the anointed one, sent from God to redeem his people. Even though when Jesus said this, most of them still didn't understand the implications of that. And they didn't understand it because they were so wrapped up in the life they were living. This is where the church is today. Especially the church in the United States. Especially, and I'm going to, I'm really going to step on some toes. If anybody hears this on the podcast, I'm probably going to get hunted down and shot. In the United States today, the most popular eschatological position is that of the pre-trib dispensationalism. Meaning that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to remove the church from the world before things get bad. Okay? that's I have problems with that, but besides my problems with that, it looks so much like first century Israel. Because they thought that the Messiah is going to come and rescue us from oppression. The Messiah is going to come and everything's going to be great and we're all going to be in God's kingdom. Just like God promised us right now. And what they missed was all the stuff that Jesus was teaching about how the life of a Christian is going to look. Because he talks about the humility that's required. If we're going to be taken up, and, and, and all of the stuff that Jesus taught, there are those who will tell you that in the dispensational category, all that stuff that Jesus taught is for the millennial kingdom. It's not for the church age. It's for when Jesus comes back. The Sermon on the Mount, that's when Jesus comes back. Well, the problem with that is if Jesus was coming back to establish his kingdom in first century Israel, right? Would the issue of people's sin have been dealt with? No. No, it wouldn't have been dealt with. There would have been no sacrifice for sin. He thought all the problem was the Romans. And before the Romans, it was the Seleucids and the, and the Ptolemies. And before them, it was the Greeks. And, and before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Babylonians. And before the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians. And in the United States, we have other groups that we blame for our problems. We need to realize the implications that Jesus did come to redeem his people, not from the situations that they're dealing with, but for the situations that they're dealing with. He came to give us the ability to persevere through 
the stuff that is unpleasant. He came to give us the comforter who would be there with us to give us the wisdom and the boldness. He promises the church that there's going to be persecution, that there's going to be tribulation, that there's going to be trouble, that they're going to be executed. Never once does he say that there's going to come a point where all of a sudden, poof, if you're a believer, you get a get-out-of-trouble-free card. That's not how it happens. Now, I've made it all the way through verse 8. Verse 9, personally, is one of my favorite verses because when people hear verse 9, if they're really paying attention, they hear verse 9, and it should make them do that RCA puppy expression off the old RCA record label, right? You know, I'm talking about that, huh? Verse 9, if you hold to any idea that salvation is something that you must grasp or accept before God does something, look at verse 9. I am praying for them. Who's them? Those who God has given to him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I am praying for those who are already mine. I'm not praying for those who aren't. We really don't like to think that Jesus might be exclusive and only pray specifically for the church. Because the the traditional wisdom in the church is that Jesus died for everybody. Well, I, I want to challenge you to think about the implication here for a second. If Jesus died for, any, for everybody, okay? If he died for everybody and there's one person who does not get saved, in that person's case, what does it make Jesus' death? A failure. Are we really comfortable saying that Jesus' death was a failure in some cases? I have a problem with that. I have some real heartburn saying that, well, Jesus was close. He, he managed to save some, but not everybody that he came to die for. What? He's exclusively praying specifically for the church in this prayer. As, as beautiful as this prayer is, as powerful as this prayer is, he is praying specifically for the church. I am praying for those you have given me, not for everybody else. All mine are yours. All yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. It's only here at the end of his life, that Jesus starts talking about his glory. Those who belong to the Father belong to the Son. Those who belong to the Son belong to the Father. And just as Jesus, back in verse 1, was talking about glorifying the Father, the Son is glorified in what we do when we're obedient. That 
is the challenge. That's the application. That's, that's why I stopped right here in verse 10. Are we really glorifying God in our lives? Now, I'm not talking about empty... Uh, I'm not talking about externalism. I'm not talking about do we only listen to God-glorifying music. I'm not talking about do we watch movies that aren't God-glorifying. I'm not talking about do we go out to restaurants on Sunday or not. Uh, there's a huge debate in some circles, and it just, it's just, I'm concerned it's idiotic. But I'm talking about in our active obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. He says, you will be my witnesses. We have the option to be a good witness or a bad witness, right? He says, go, and as you go, do what? Make disciples, teaching people all that I've commanded you, right? He tells us what the life of a believer is supposed to look like. He who desires to be first will be last. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the, the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, not the people who duck conflict for the not a conflict, but the people who make peace, reconcile broken relationships. All of the things that Jesus commands us to do, to, to take up our cross and follow him, are we glorifying God in our lives? Are we bringing glory to Jesus or are we glorifying ourselves? Are, are we really, truly, and honestly worshiping God? Because worship means showing His worth. And He's the only one who's worthy to receive honor and praise. The only one who's to be worshipped. Or do we, in our lives, demonstrate that our worship is elsewhere? And we worship... Don't, don't, I'm not saying we're all Satan worshipers. The things that we substitute for worship are sometimes good things. Family, wealth, work. Here's one. Our religious practice. There are people in the church particularly who have elevated their religious practice to a place of worship. As long as they're in their seat on Sunday morning, as long as they're singing, as long as they're putting money in the plate, as long as they're teaching Sunday school or sitting in the nursery, as long as they're doing the right stuff, that's their worship. They're not worshiping God. They're worshiping their behavior. Is that us? I hope not. So the question for this week, are we glorifying God with our lives? We need to be, because he needs to be the one who gets the glory, all on his own.